No one ever saw this coming, but here we are, bonded forever by the same ex-husband. Once arch enemies and now partners in crime, we journey to the edge of sanity to uncover the dark truth about our ex-husband. My name is Athena. And I'm Amber. And we are the creators of Ex-Wives Undercover. This podcast is based on real-life events that are portrayed to the best of Athena and Amber's memory and also backed by court records and other factual evidence. While all the stories in the podcast are true, some names and identifying details have been changed to protect the privacy of the people involved. Post-separation abuse is absolutely no joke, and oftentimes it's just as bad, if not worse, than when you're with your significant other. So, as you can expect, Ben's reign of terror absolutely did not stop once Athena filed divorce. So, before we get into my episode and how we met, let's take a brief moment to catch you up to speed on what transpired after Athena filed divorce in 2012 and when I met Ben at the end of 2013. Once the divorce was officially signed off and filed, I was excited for the new Ben-free chapter in my life to finally begin. I had envisioned this fresh start that included a sense of peace and calmness. I was confident that the year ahead would be drama-free with no massive fires to put out every month like before. I was slowly starting to adjust to Ben having Sydney three days a week too. Lexis was extremely happy about the divorce, but she was going through a major adjustment as well. So when Sydney was with Ben, I was able to spend one-on-one time with Lexis. And although Sydney was only two years old, she was very much a spirited child who could be hard to control, and Lexis and her little sister were already starting to butt heads. I definitely noticed the differences between her and Lexis. Lexis seemed to follow the description of the average baby, toddler, and now young girl profile. Sydney was very different from Lexis, and I recognized that when Sydney was only about four months old. When Lexis was around four to six months old, I remember how she would wake up in her crib and she'd make these little noises and giggles, and she'd do that for a little while, and then finally she would start to whine and want me to come get her. With Sydney, I never experienced that. From the moment she woke up, she was crying. She was never happy or content unless I was walking around with her, singing and dancing. Sydney, however, was quick to roll over, crawl, and walk, and once she could get moving on her own, I noticed her full body tantrums and overall unhappiness start to lessen. I also knew how hard it was on Lexis to have her mother's attention turn toward her younger sister during a time when she needed me just as much. The guilt I felt would be overwhelming at times. Before Ben and Sydney had come into our lives, Lex and I were a happy, inseparable duo and now things were very different. And as the months passed by, Sydney's behavior started to worsen, and I couldn't even take her into a grocery store. All of those times I had previously judged those mothers with the obnoxious shithead kids were flashing before my eyes. I was so wrong to judge them, or anyone else for that matter. I was officially that mom. Spirited, for sure. Um, I can attest to that. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, okay. As far as Sydney goes... You're right. That was a light way of putting it. She was a child that was constantly demanded attention. I thought she was lacking and a little slow in the comprehension department. So like things weren't clicking at a certain age and adding up. Um, And later we know that there is a misfire in her brain and she has a very short working memory among other issues. And so I did bring that up 
a lot and I knew something was wrong and off. I took Sydney to her pediatrician often to treat her for ear infections. During those appointments, I would tell the doctor that I felt something was wrong with her. Her doctor brushed off my concerns repeatedly. After another few years, things were only getting worse. It was like the pathways in Sydney's brain weren't firing correctly. I brought her back into the doctor with a 102 degree fever. While the doctor examined her, I broke down and I cried. I told him again that I thought she hated me and that she was so mean to me so often. As I explained everything that had been going on, Sydney was bouncing all over the place in his treatment room. Her doctor looked at me and said, Athena, your little one is running a very high fever and extremely ill and she is still running around the room like nothing is wrong. She most definitely has ADHD. Wow, why hadn't I thought about that? I too was diagnosed with ADHD as a child. The diagnosis didn't make a lot of sense for about 50% of the issues I was having with her, but the other 50% of her issues and symptoms were nothing I had ever experienced myself with ADHD. I was never a mean or unhappy child. The doctor gave me a list of guidelines, ideas, and tools to help her because Sydney was too young for medication. I forwarded all of the information to Ben so that he was on the same page. We both saw the issues with her behavior and we were struggling with what to do, so I knew Ben would be on board with trying anything we could to make life easier for all of us. You know, he had mentioned like you had to put melatonin in her milk to make her... She wouldn't sleep? You no. Know, yeah. She, was she would, wide she would and... wake up in the mornings when she was tiny. She'd wake up in the morning and... I would go in there, and this is when she was older. I wrote about it, her in her crib in the chapter, but when even when she was a little bit older in a, in a big girl bed, I would say, hi, sweetie, hi, princess, good morning. You look so beautiful, I love you. And I would start off every morning like that in the nicest, kindest, loving, flattering, flattering this two-year-old beyond. And she would start punching and kicking, yeah, and thrashing and don't stop, you're mean, get away, get away, and trying to punch me. It's really interesting too, because it sounds like he was on the same page with you in regards to her, but when he would come home to me, he would throw you under the bus. He would say, you know, Athena, hi, Charlie. <laughs> um, Athena just doesn't, she can't handle her. She wants to just put her on drugs because she doesn't want a parent. She'd rather comatose her and make her a zombie and drug her out than be a parent. Um, she's too busy with her boyfriends, with Lexi, with her friends, her partying. There's nothing wrong with my child. There's never been anything wrong with my child. She's just an active child. He would come back and just throw you under the bus. If there was one thing that we could come to terms with and like actually talk about and, and be on the same page about, and that was her behavior. And it was shocking. He knew well enough to know that something was up, but because he's very involved with her and he, she was his everything and she's perfect, right? Mm -hmm. um, she, like she has to be the best of the best. Then it was, he'd go on little rants of being defensive here and there, but after a while he couldn't deny it. Um, question. Can I jump in? So, yeah. um, do you think that he had started the minute you guys divorced to brainwash her against you? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. She also had night terrors when she was very, very little and we were still together because we had to bring her into our room. They were so bad. We had a monitor with a journal. It would happen every night and it was very scary. She would thrash and punch and kick and scream bloody murder while she was sleeping and you can't wake them up if you try to get more aggressive. 
So this was happening even before he and I ended. Wow. Uh-huh. I tried so many things. Like I realized that she was had major hearing loss. And so maybe it was a frustration. Maybe she was super cranky because she wasn't sleeping through the night. We found out um, her breathing wasn't as good and she was sick a lot. So they always had an idea of maybe why things were happening. And it made sense to a degree. But then after surgeries, she had her tonsils out, her adenoids out. So she could sleep better. I got our weighted blanket. I got our larger bed. You know, mm -hmm. we tried to do everything. And, and in the end, it always kind of came back to that. Aside from the struggles of motherhood, I had to deal with Ben meddling in my personal life. He would use Sydney as an excuse to pry and, and demand that I would tell him who I was with and where I was. It was constant. If Ben somehow caught wind about me going on a date or attending any type of social event, he would create some type of emergency involving Sydney to get me to leave wherever I was to go and be with her. Now, after I caught on and I realized that Ben was now using Sydney as a pawn to disrupt my life, I began to ignore his attempts of sabotage. And then, when I wouldn't reply to Ben's messages and phone calls, I would receive a minimum of 25 to 30 texts with him putting me down, calling me awful names, and telling me what a horrible mother I was. And even though I knew I was a loving, good mother, a person can only take so much verbal, emotional, and manipulative abuse. Ben's abusive behavior continued month after month, and it only worsened when I fell into a relationship with a man named Brad. During those two years Brad and I were together, we had to deal with Ben's constant meddling, scheming, and physical violent threats. Ben even went so far as to write Brad an email pretending to be a business associate who was asking for an in-person meeting. Thankfully, Ben's dumbass had forgotten to remove his email signature at the bottom of the page that was automatically added at the end of all of his emails. Brad realized that his crazy ass was once again up to no good, but he decided to play along with it and let Ben show up at that appointment. Of course, Brad didn't show up. Brad was, was like a two-year relationship-ish? Yeah, just no, just like that, a little less than two years. Yeah, so that was kind of like the first one where he had to share his daughter with another man, and that made him go crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, super jealous, and so... You know. Did you find like the way he stalked you was different than when yes. he thought maybe he could get you back? Because he obviously knew you moved on. It's been a while. Like, yep. you're not going back. So was it just yeah. for the fact of, I just want to destroy anything yep. that you have just for vengeance? Yeah, it was. It was to destroy our relationship. It was to make it hard. It was to break us up. Um, and he would love to have me on the back burner. I would still, right. until a few months into him dating you, it was, it was all of it. It was to win me. It wasn't to only win me back. It was to, it wasn't the sweet gestures to win me back. It was the mean gestures to break us up in hopes that I would be available for him. So was it a fake account or is his no. real account? This is what's so strange. Maybe he edited it temporarily or changed it. It's so weird. All I know is that Brad got it. And at the very end of it, he he was going by a different name. And he's like, thanks so much. They were meeting at a Starbucks. So he reached out and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I would love to talk to you about this business. Like, 
something about this. I think it was like a job position and you might be perfect for it. Just like made it sound so great. Brad's like, oh, okay. And then he gets he's to like, the bottom of the email and yeah. he's like, what the F? This is yeah. Ben. Really? And at the very end, he forgot to change the email signature. So although he like it's wrote this email as this and that, at the very end, it had Ben blah, 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 blah. What was the point? Like, what was he going to talk to him about? He asked to meet him in person. And it had been after where he was pissed off because Sydney came home and was going on and on about how much fun she had had with us and how he had hugged her. And she was riding on her shoulders and she was being a little girl and sharing stuff. Just normal. Yeah. And then that's when he said, do not, gotta, do not do this. He was so angry and so jealous. So he's going to try to threaten him. He was going to try to like beat him, him up. Oh my God. Yeah. How embarrassing. Oh. Yeah. One time we walked into Fred Meyer and Kirkland and we ran into them and when I walked, I was putting the cart away with Lexus and walking back to the car and Ben had Sydney. I had Lexus and I was with Brad. He made his way out of the Fred Meyer, Ben did, as I was putting the cart back away. And I walk up and he's standing there at my car, trying, like talking shit to Brad, trying to start something. And Brad's like looking down at him, like in front of your kids, dude. Yeah. Like, seriously? Sydney already had no filter, being that she was only four, and she would tell us the rules that her father had given her regarding her interaction with Brad. Ben told Sydney that she didn't need to listen to Brad or follow his rules and that she didn't even need to be nice to him. Ben also told Sydney that she wasn't allowed to hug Brad. With that said, I'm sure you can all imagine the lack of respect Sydney would show my boyfriend. I could see the internal struggle she went through when she found herself playing with Brad and having fun. It's like believe she was betraying her father. Unfortunately, that was only the beginning of the sick and twisted manipulations that Ben groomed her for. I wouldn't find out everything until years later. He was constantly fucking with us, fake emails, threats. He was just so jealous, which we've talked about before. And, but I will say yeah. that she did want to jump all over Brad she jumped in his lap, just like you. And I have, vid I have videos where like, he'll, he's so tall. He's like walking and he's walking and she's like holding on. It's like, I think it's either her or Lexi and then the next child. And he's like dragging them as he's walking through the kitchen and they're holding onto his feet. Um, and, but what happened, what would happen is she would throw herself at him and give him affection. And he would like, he's such a goofball and he was so funny to play with her. And he's like, eh, you know, crazy. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden she get nervous and back away. And mm -hmm. I would, and it was so abrupt. And I'd be like, are you okay? What's going on? Nothing, nothing. And then finally, when she could start communicating better, she would say, dad says, I'm not allowed to hug Brad. Dad said, I'm not allowed to like him. Brad, oh my gosh. Dad said, I can only high five him. Dad said this. Dad said that. Dad said he's not a nice guy. All these horrible things to a little girl. Talk oh about gosh. a major mind fuck and you wonder why, like, she has issues.
It was important to me and Athena to be as raw and vulnerable as possible with our listeners. This is the time where I feel like we need to go back, just like Athena did, to give a little bit of background on my history and my youth and how I grew up so that maybe you could have a little bit more understanding about why I stayed with Ben for as long as I did and gave him the benefit of the doubt and other various decisions that I made. So here we go. I guess we should start with my parents. They dated all throughout high school, got engaged, and then were married immediately. Right after high school, my dad was in the Marines during the Vietnam era, and they were stationed in Yuma, Arizona. And very shortly after that, they had my older sister, Stacy. Once my dad got out of the Marines, they moved back to Oregon, and about three and a half years later, they had me. And here is my lovely mother, Jeannie. You'll actually hear us call her Grandma Jeannie a lot throughout the podcast. She was very sweet and easygoing, easy to take care of. And she was happy as a clam as long as she had a box full of toys and a stack of books to read. Pretty quiet. Just, um, just like very, very easy. To say that me and my sister are complete opposites is an understatement. She was very spunky had a mind of her own, and she really gave my parents a run for their money. I interviewed my older sister, Stacy, and this is what she had to say. You and I were complete opposite children, is what I remember. You were everything that I wasn't and vice versa. I hated to read books, you loved to read books. I didn't want to sit on mom's lap and have her read me a book. That's all you seemed to want to do at the younger ages. I hated dolls. You love dolls. Um, I hated spending time alone. You like to spend time alone. You were a people pleaser and I was not. I did not care what anybody thought. And I can remember we would go um, shopping, school clothes shopping every year. And mom, for whatever reason, wanted to pick out our clothes. And I was very specific about what I would and would not wear. And if she tried to make me wear something I didn't like, I would be like, nope, not doing it. And she would get all mad at me about it. And you, on the other hand, she would pick out these clothes for you. And I knew you didn't like them, but you would totally, oh yeah, mom, that's great. And you would get those clothes and then I would never see you in them because you just had this, um, this thing about you where you wanted to please everyone. You wanted to please your parents. You wanted to please your teachers. You were just very people, people pleasing, nurturing, you know, you were a nice kid. Yeah. I, I totally remember that. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's these really ugly pants. I remember that mom tried to get you to buy and instead she pawned them off on me and I was like, oh yeah, those are great. And right. I hated them. I thought they were so ugly. They were I know, plaid, I think. I'm that's what I'm trying to explain. That's who you were as a kid. You would never say, no, I don't like that. It, until you got much older, it was like you you didn't want to make anybody upset. So you would just go with whatever. For as long as I remember, I was always told that I was the spitting image of my dad. They would even call me Little Dean. 
Um, but don't be fooled because I was a complete and total mama's girl. I never wanted to leave her side. I was her shadow. I loved cuddling and just making cookies and, you know, just anything to be with my mom. I would say I was a very imaginative little kid. I always was playing by myself and in my own make-believe world and my baby dolls were my everything. So my parents are still married to this day. They always got along. I don't think there was ever a time as a kid that I heard them fight. But they were definitely not outwardly affectionate at all. In fact, my whole family was like that. So we never said, I love you. We never hugged one another. Our grandparents um, had a farm with vegetables, chickens, cows, everything. And we spent every single weekend out there with all of our cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And I felt like we had a pretty close family. Our immediate family dynamics was just very normal. Mom and dad never fought in front of us. I can't remember a time where they ever raised their voices, cursed at each other. They weren't, you know, overly affectionate with each other. We didn't grow up in a affectionate type of family. That's just how we, they were, but they also didn't fight. So I feel like we had a stable, um, stable family wasn't the typical hugs and um i love yous as other families are but i think they showed it in other ways were you bothered that our family didn't hug and say i love you or be emotionally outwardly more affectionate not at all i felt very loved i mean i feel like Mom and dad were, were also very different, but mom made up for anything, any area that dad was lacking a little bit. And I think now we all kind of understand that dad was someone that dealt with anxiety all of his life. Um, we just didn't know or understand what he was going through. And it was all he could do to just get through his work day. And then he wanted to come home and, and relax. So he missed out on a lot of our sporting events and. You know, he didn't come with us. Mom would take us hiking or to the beach or to the zoo, or she took us a lot to do a lot of fun things and he didn't participate in a lot of that. But I never thought anything of it. It was like, okay, dad doesn't feel like going or whatever, he worked all day. It didn't bother me at all. Now my mom wasn't verbally expressive either but she was a mom's mom like she was mega mom if that was a term like she made up for it as far as you know spending quality time with me and my sister it was the three of us all the time she was at every softball game every dance competition she was there always but my dad was a different story and let me preface this by saying i love my dad so much and as I've grown to an adult, I understand more about him and we have grown into having a very close relationship. But as a child, it was different. 
you know, um, I think this is the part where generational trauma comes into play. And my dad didn't grow up in the healthiest of environments. And so I don't think he really knew or had the tools to express love as an adult and as a father. But as a child, I didn't understand. He didn't really play with me. He never asked me how my day was or attended any of my school events. So sometimes I wondered, did he love me at all? But it wasn't just my dad. All of the men in my family were very aloof. So I can't say that I really knew either of my grandfathers or my uncles. So there was this really big disconnect with the men in my life. And you'll see that in my relationships as I got older. I think the first time that I can actually remember dad saying, I love you to me, was the day after I gave birth to Bradley. He was emotional about that. It was his first grandchild. And he came into the hospital room on his way to work. And he, he told me, he said, I love you. And I remember like, what? Like almost feeling like weird. Like you didn't have to say that. I, I already know you love me. <laughs> Oh my God, I had the same experience. I think I was 18 years old and that was the first time and only time actually that I remember dad saying, I love you. It was when he dropped me off at college and yeah. it was like, I start bawling because I had never heard that before. And just like you, it took me off guard. Like, oh, yeah, it was like, a weird like thing. it was weird. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. And he started bawling and I started bawling, but it was like, oh my God, it took me 18 years to hear it. Now, by the time I got into grade school, that is when I really started developing this I must be perfect thing. And I don't know exactly where this came from because neither of my parents ever put that on me. It was this internal drive. I love school. I loved learning. I mean, you could probably call me a teacher's pet. I was that kid. And so while my sister was the rebel and she'd often get negative attention, I would seek it out by being perfect. And we didn't really get along and weren't particularly close until years later. When you have one person that's just getting into those teenage years, and then at that point you would have been like, what, eight or nine, eight years old? You were just young enough that I think the age difference, I certainly didn't, being a, a teenager, I didn't want anything to do with a younger kid tagging along. And um, so I think the age difference, I think the fact that you and I were complete opposites and I was just an asshole. <laughs> Honestly. I mean. do, you, do you feel like you resented me at all? Because I was a people pleaser and... Like you yes. felt like I was kissing mom and dad's ass. Oh yes. That annoyed the crap out of me. I always felt like I'm always the bad guy because I'm the only one that's willing to say yes or no, or, you know, what, that you were always going along with whatever they said to please them. So yeah, I was always like the bad, the bad one. I very much carried on my perfectionism into high school. I was literally involved in everything. I was the co-captain of our dance team. I made the all-state team my senior year. I wrote for the school paper. I was involved in several clubs. I took Japanese. I maintained a 3.8 GPA. It was 
go, go, go. Um, and I had these huge lofty goals of what I thought my life was gonna be. I had a ton of friends, but I wouldn't say that I was a social bug. In fact, I really struggled in my youth with being an introvert. I basically had to pretend that I was this outgoing person when I wasn't at all. Now, dating didn't really happen until I hit my college years and into my early 20s. And this is when you'll see a pattern begin with me. Naturally, I was super attracted to what I considered the best of the best, the best looking, the smartest, the most talented. And this really backfired in a big way because those guys began chipping away at my self-esteem year after year after year. And while they looked incredible on paper, most of them were emotionally unavailable. And honestly, it was great because that's all I knew of men in my life. Now, don't get me wrong. There were plenty of guys that would have loved to date me, but the minute they would treat me well and pay me attention, I literally ran for the hills. It terrified me. And I didn't know how to be loved and accept love, especially by a man. When I was in college, my fear of being a part of gossip only escalated. And I would hear frat guys talk horribly about women. Like, she's a slut. She's a bitch. She's psycho. I was horrified. And I remember thinking to myself, I never want to be that girl. I don't want people saying those kinds of things about me. So even when I was being treated horribly by these emotionally unavailable men, call them what you will, players, fuckboys, whatever, I would never say anything or express how they made me feel or how they hurt me. Not ever. I didn't want them to think I was crazy or I was needy or whatever, something mean. I just had this absolute fear. Once I graduated college, it was go time. I had to walk the walk. You know, for years I was, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And it was always about the future. Well, then the future came. And all those goals and aspirations I had as a child were supposed to come to fruition. I was supposed to live this really grand life, but reality hit me so hard. There was a recession when I first got out and I struggled to get that first job. I had to move back to my parents' house. And it was right around this time that my family started experiencing a lot of death. And that was a first for me. It was my grandfather, my great-grandmother, my uncle, my cousin, my aunt. It was like every week we were at a funeral. And then the topper was that my sister was diagnosed with cancer and it came back four times. So all of this, I didn't realize at the time, but it really kicked off this decade of depression for me. And it took a hold of my life for quite some time. It was just too much stress and depression, sad things happening in the family all at once. It just seemed to really hit you. That's when I noticed it. I don't know how many doctors you saw and how many different uh, antidepressants you took over a few year period, but nothing seemed to really 
work didn't change the way you felt and a lot of the doctors just didn't think that you had anything to be depressed about you know they you know you're young you're good looking you've got your whole life ahead of you what have you got to be depressed about so i feel like you didn't think they took you seriously it really started with panic attacks all the time but this perfectionism that I had throughout my whole entire life, it wouldn't allow me to tell anyone that I was struggling emotionally. And only my family and very, very few of my friends knew anything about it. I would put on a happy face every single day for a decade and I would cry myself to sleep and I felt so alone. I think the worst part for us is feeling helpless about it. There was nothing we could do for you besides just try to be present. I guess my mind didn't want to go there to think that you would absolutely be that bad that you would take your life. I don't think a mother ever wants to think that their child is that bad. I felt like a failure and that I didn't live up to anyone's expectations and especially my own. All I could dwell on was that I was broke. I had a job that I hated. I was living at my parents. I was still single and I didn't know how to fix myself. And I remember going to the doctor trying to get help and just pretty much get laughed out of their office. I remember one guy was like, oh honey, what can you possibly be upset about? And then he proceeded to just kind of ask me, well, what, what medication do you want to be on? And I just felt so defeated and like no one cares. No one understands. No one is listening to me. I'm screaming for help and no one is hearing me. And it was devastating. And during this era of depression, I still was flocking to these emotionally unavailable men. It just continued. And with each new guy, it only reinforced that no matter how perfect I was, I simply wasn't worth loving. And that's how I felt. And eventually it came to a head and um, I, I was suicidal. And I said, you know what, I'm done. I give up and I'm done. And I remember thinking about ways that I was going to do it. And I didn't want my family to find me. I didn't want my roommate to find me. I, I just wanted to disappear. And I remember I finally told myself, I said, okay, there's this highway out to the beach. What if I just drove? And there's a lot of semi truck activity on that road. What if I just swerved and it would appear as if it was an accident and I would die instantly and they wouldn't be hurt because they'd be in a semi and it would just look like an accident. And I drove myself out there and I couldn't do it. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to be better. I wanted to be happy and I was so desperate. But after that night, everything changed. 
It was like my mind was like, I can't do it. I want to be here. I want to live and I want to have a good life. And I don't know. I went in and I was having migraines and I went and got put on a migraine medicine. And I think by chance that medicine started rebalancing the chemicals in my brain. And so all of a sudden, each day got a little better and a little better and a little better. And I was feeling good and I started working out and just everything started shifting. And then I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to stay, then I need to make this life worth living. I need to get over this perfectionism. I need to say it's okay to have flaws and it's okay that I'm not perfect and it's okay to have a regular job and not live this grandiose life that I felt that everyone thought that I was supposed to live. And I'm fine the way I am. And so I started doing all these amazing things. I started traveling. I went to Italy. I went to Switzerland. I went to France. I went to Japan. I started hiking and kayaking and skydiving and just living my best life. And I did that for about seven, eight, nine years prior to meeting Ben. But it took a while. I was still dating the wrong guys. But leading up to Ben, it was just shifting in my brain. Like, I'm done. I'm done with the cycle of these same guys. I, I'm ready to be treated good. And I'm ready, most importantly, to accept love from someone. And so this is probably a good place to stop. I think this gives you a little bit of an idea of the roller coaster that I was on. And what you've all been waiting for, season one, episode 13, A Slice of Beefcake. It was the fall of 2013 and I had just moved into a new apartment with my friend in Portland's coveted Pearl District. Still single as usual, I just thought living in the city would be super exciting and there would be a lot more opportunities to meet new friends, maybe even a new love interest, you never know. My belongings weren't even unpacked from boxes when I decided to visit my really good friend Crystal up in Seattle. And apparently there's this thing called the Seattle Freeze that's complained about by everyone who moves there. I had no idea what that was, nor cared, but poor Crystal was having a really, really hard time meeting friends and she jumped at the opportunity to have me come visit whenever I could. She lived in downtown Seattle, so what else are we gonna do but go to the bars? We had gone out that night to a pizza place. It was just catching up and we got wasted singing at this pizza place, staggered home the like next karaoke day. karaoke singing or just oh, randomly no, singing? No, it, they had music in the background and oh. we were just wailing, making complete asses of ourselves. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. I don't know any of these people. So it's fine. <laughs> I can just go home and whatever. Next morning, as we nursed a pretty good hangover, we talked about how things were going for her in Seattle. She was a little homesick, but had met a few good friends. She still wasn't dating anyone though. So I had tried in the past to have her go on match.com and she was absolutely adamant that she wasn't going to do it. 
um, just super stubborn. Then I had a brilliant idea, or so I thought anyways. I told her about this new app that I just learned about. It was a networking app that my roommate had told me about, and it was brand new, literally maybe two months old at the time, and it was called Tinder. We were swiping right on every profile, and she kind of said, you know, this looks kind of like a dating app, and I I remember saying, well, I know, it totally does, but my roommate said it was a networking app, so I, I mean, I don't know. Fast forward to the drive home on Sunday and my phone was blowing up with messages. It was then that I realized, yeah, it was definitely a dating app and Crystal was going to kill me. I swiped right on all of these people. (laughs) So they're all like, hey, she likes me. (laughs) And so I'm like driving and I'm swerving all over trying to read these messages. Like, what the fuck? I broke so many hearts. I made it home safely and decided to peruse the messages just out of curiosity and maybe a little bit of entertainment. It wasn't like any of these guys were actually going to be boyfriend material because they lived up in Seattle and I was in Portland. But one message led to two and on and on and there was this one guy in particular that was really persistent and he texted me every day and I wasn't really attracted physically to him, but he was really fun and interesting to talk to. And it just was really nice and much needed. Ben messaged you back because he is one of the men you swiped right on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but then you decided, okay, I'll respond because was he like persistent as he usually is? He was the most persistent. Mm -hmm. He was super, super. He's a go-getter. Yeah. He goes after what he wants for sure. I was like, okay, well, you know, but then it was like, yeah. oh, well, he's actually, I I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. I was kind of yeah. surprised. Like, he's, really, yeah, he's good like that. He's, he's a good conversationalist. Yeah. I was 36 years old and deserved a real man who knew how to treat me well. And that guy on Tinder who wouldn't leave me alone, his name was Ben. And for the time being, I nicknamed him Beefcake. For the next three weeks, me and Beefcake talked all day, every day, and I was really kind of liking him. This was major because I never, I mean, never ever gave a guy the time of day if he didn't make me swoon in lust. So in a weird way, having some distance was actually a good thing, and it forced us to get to know one another for who we were versus what we looked like. And what I knew thus far was that he was very charming, super attentive, and he made me feel special. And I was a little torn though. You know, as I looked over the pictures on his Tinder profile, I cringed. We're talking shirtless pics in Vegas with a bunch of other meatheads, pics of him doing a kissy face and what appeared to be a very old picture from high school. So I couldn't help but think he was a total douchebag and not someone I would ever in a million years hang out with, let alone date. No, I've never been into big muscle heads mm-hmm. ever. No. But his personality and did not match that look. So it probably did throw you no, off. No, it threw me off big time. Yeah. And I kept going back to the pictures and it was really hard because I don't like vanity pictures. Too showy. Sh- yes. And I didn't like that. And yeah. kissy face pictures. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I just thought, ew, yeah. I don't like 
that. And then it was like a shirtless picture in Mexico, which I think you were there. It was a picture from yeah, he was with your me. Mexico trip. Yes. And then it was my father's was home. A, yep. And then an old high school picture, which was, it just looked really, really dated. Yes. The corduroy jacket. And then I think the Seahawks hat, blue one. Possibly the blue eye picture. Yes. Yeah. So I felt like it was maybe a misrepresentation. Here's my sister explaining my typical guy that I would go after. Most of them were kind of tall, slender, very good looking, very pretty, um, athletic. Yeah, kind of like the, overachievers, I would say, like uh -huh. um, very smart. Um, and they were all emotionally unavailable. Oh, yeah. And my best friend Shayna also gives her input about what kind of guys I normally went for. The the guys that you liked in college were the ones who were the unattainable, mysterious, a little bad boy, a little rebellious, but they were always the ones that didn't give you all the attention. So you got some attention, but you had to earn it almost from them. Um, and you tried really hard. And the ones that liked you, that were like all about, I want to date Amber. You were like, no, ew, no, oh, eh. I like him as a friend. No, I don't want that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the vicious cycle of, and, and you were the one, okay, so I can't say his real name because that would not work out, but you, you, <laughs> the first week, I swear, we were going to the Kappa Sigs. People who listen to this are going to know who this is, but <laughs> I'm vividly saying, you telling me, Amber, do not date a man with two first names. And sure enough, <laughs> the guy that I was like, yeah, that's the one I oh. want. Two first names. He broke right, my and, heart. <laughs> he just, and he was all, and sorry if you're listening to this, but he was all kinds of messy. He was All kinds messy. of messy. I know. I don't think he listens to this pod, but he was super messy. Mm -hmm. And he had two first names. And to this day, I can't do it. And even the guy I'm with now, I'm like, your last name's sort of first name-ish. <laughs> and it makes me like, oh, <laughs> if it's not one of those. <laughs> so it's like a mental thing. And also, no. how how like generic of me to be like, don't date a guy with two first names. Like, where did I hear that in a movie? Because you're so wise at 18, right? <laughs> you are oh, an God. old soul, though. And that's why I always went to you always we had arranged to meet in seattle the first weekend in november so it had been about three to four weeks of talking non-stop i begged my roommate kelly to go with me before i went i actually did my due diligence and i stalked him like any good woman would i needed to know exactly what i was getting myself into and somehow i got his last name by casually bringing it up in conversation but unfortunately it was a very common last name so finding him on social media was really difficult. We actually spent hours perusing through hundreds of profiles looking for him, and we eventually did. But you can imagine the surprise on our faces when we saw that his profile picture was of him and a little girl. Ben was a father. In the three weeks we had talked, he never mentioned, not even one time, that he had a daughter nor that he had been previously married. 
It's cool. It's awesome. You're 40 something years old. Like, it's normal. Yeah. You should probably, it's not that unusual that you have a child. Most fathers and even a lot of mothers, like, they say it right off the bat to not play games. Exactly. Not to mention the fact that when you do meet him, he goes above and beyond to tell everybody how important she is and what a great father he is. So he seemed harmless enough, but I still did one of those background checks where you can purchase online for like $40. I knew his birth date. I knew his hometown. It was pretty easy to narrow it down to the right person. But after processing, I was horrified because there was quite a list And I didn't even know what any of them were for. There was like 30 or 40 things long. But I felt like half of them, I didn't know what they were. It gives a case number, but it doesn't say what it was for. Yeah. Um, So unless I knew what county, like it would take me days and hours to go hunting through various counties and different things to find out what it was for. Did they say if they were like criminal or No, it doesn't really say. It doesn't really say. There was a few things that did say. It would say like uh, speeding or something. Yeah. Or reckless driving or speeding or DUI. Okay. Um, Some of it was from like 1999 or really, you know what I mean? He actually Um, had a DUI the year I met him and had no idea because I did not do what you did and which was very intelligent by the way to run a background check um i wish i would have he was driving on a oh suspended gosh. license and that's why he drove like that and i didn't know that till probably a few years ago uh, after oh my gosh yeah wow that was so I mean, that was so smart of you like i felt like i was being smart that. but at the same time it's like it didn't really provide me that much information i and his excuse there, was good like Right. You know, I mean, I kind of playfully was like, I just want to make sure you're not going to kill me when I go up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, can I just want to make sure, can I get your, can I get your address or your whatever personal information? Your social security number, thanks. Uh, you know. Your address, your driver's license. <laughs> so, and he gave it to me because um, I know he's given other girls since me like fake birthdays and things like that but um he kind of just laughed me off and he had a really quick response and he basically said that they because he has a very generic name yes that there's uh, and he's had it because he just kind of rolled his eyes like oh my gosh i have this problem all the time don't worry about it i can get you a legit uh background check and he would say there's no way i could ever have the job that i do if i had any kind of criminal record We decided to meet at a little dive bar located next to the hotel and getting ready in our room, I started to get a little bit nervous. What if we didn't like each other? What if it's weird? You know, all those butterflies. I decided to wear a tight pair of black faux leather pants with a cobalt blue off the shoulder top for added sex appeal. It's kind of going for a girl next door with a little bit of edge. Mission accomplished. And while waiting for Ben and his friend to arrive, me and Kelly sat nervously taking pictures with these little coasters that were on the table that had cute mustaches on them. And finally, what seemed like forever, they arrived. I can't say the first meeting was lust at first sight, not even really a slight butterfly feeling. I remember thinking to myself that this was going to be a long night. Ben sat to my left and his friend Nate sat across the table from Kelly. We definitely started ordering drinks and we tried to make small talk and it kind of felt like the Kelly and Ben show because they did most of the talking. 
Nate was a complete mute and it was next to impossible to have any conversation with him at all. I really didn't feel like this was going well in my eyes. But then the alcohol started kicking in. And we all must have been feeling the same thing because for the next couple of hours, we managed to down five or six Jaeger bombs with no end in sight. Somehow we ended up back at our hotel. I don't really remember inviting them up, but they were there. Kelly was politely trying to say goodbye, but stupid me offered for them to stay in our room because I just didn't want anyone to drive home drunk. I could feel her evil eyes staring back at me and she was infuriated. But at that moment, I honestly couldn't care. I was in such bad shape that it was going to go of one of two ways. It's either I try and pass out, I was going to start puking my brains out in the bathroom. The next morning, it all kind of hit me. Oh my God, what the hell just happened? I looked over and Ben was snoring away in his bright pink underwear. Nate was passed out on the other bed and Kelly was nowhere to be found. I tiptoed into the bathroom and called her. She proceeded to tell me that she hadn't slept a wink all night because Nate was creeping her out. He was trying to undress her even after she refused his advances. Oh my God, I could not stop apologizing. I begged her to come back and in the meantime, I was trying my best to collect my belongings so I could get the hell out of there and never look back. I had every intention of ghosting Ben. Okay, I'm really, really sorry but can you come back like right now and pick me up? Cause I think they're still sleeping and we can make a run for it. Yes. <laughs> let's just, let's go right now. So I'm like frantically trying to get my stuff so we can leave. So I was tiptoeing around, but dr- being drunk, I'm probably being louder than I think I am. Yes. And I'm like in the bathroom and all of a sudden I look over and there's Ben. I'm like, hi. And he's like, well, when do I get to see you again? And I'm like, uh, uh, and so I just kind of was stuttering and I couldn't think of a good excuse. He's like, well, can I see you next weekend? I'm like, oh, well, it's Thanksgiving. So no, Thanksgiving's on Thursday. Do you, do you like celebrate the whole weekend? At that point, I honestly just couldn't come up with anything. So I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. Sure. Let's get together next week. During the drive home, we analyzed how the night went like all girls do, and while I was adamant that I was never going to see Beefcake again, Kelly insisted that I at least give him a second date before making any decisions. Around 10 o'clock, he pulled up outside my apartment building. It was a Saturday morning, and we drove to a local coffee shop. It was a little bit awkward, but not too bad. But what happened next completely took me off guard. Not only did the conversation flow naturally, but I actually really enjoyed this guy. The guy that I thought was just a shallow beefcake was actually really interesting to talk to, and he was really funny. There was so much more to him than what I assumed from our first meeting. He told me about the small town in Forks, Washington, where he grew up and how he was severely obese and got bullied from the neighborhood boys. My heart immediately felt for him. He was so charming, and before we knew it, the coffee shop was closing and they had to kick us out. Wow. We were talking from mid-morning to about 5 o'clock that night, so pretty impressive. Ben was charming, and I could feel myself warming up to him. In fact, I would say more than warming up to him. I can honestly admit that I was definitely smitten by the end of the day, and he only got more attractive in my eyes the more we talked. This has never happened to me. I knew something was different about him. Maybe you need to look beyond what's on your little list 
and see beyond what you think you want or need. Just, like yeah, he's, true. you know, you've had like three to four weeks of getting to know someone outside of what they look like. Like you've been on the phone, you've texted, like you're really getting to know this person or so I thought anyways. So I just started really liking him and like being more and more attracted to him. And I, even though I was like not really attracted to that beefy muscly guy, I understood. And I was like, oh my gosh, I understand why he works out because of the bullying he witnessed and felt as a kid. And he would show me the pictures of the thick Coke bottle glasses and the nerdy clothes and him being picked on, the abusive stepfather. So he painted the story of what he went through and just being a small town boy, I related to him. It probably made sense in your mind. You probably... um, He's not what I perceived him to be. He's not this superficial... uh, I felt the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of like... I judged a book by its cover. I felt like he had so much more depth to him. Once I got to talk to him, I thought he was funny and smart and charming and compassionate. And he talked about wanting to start a gym for kids. Like they were, um, you know, underprivileged. And yeah, like I just got into his mind and his heart and I just felt for him. At this point, I thought, okay, well... He seems like a really great guy. He was everything that I had hoped for. He was smart and funny and successful, decently good-looking and family-oriented. It seems crazy to say now, but we both told each other that we felt like we were beginning to fall in love. We talked all night, and I couldn't get enough of him. I wanted to know everything about him. But at one point, he got really quiet and said that he needed to tell me something, and I had no idea what this could be. He proceeded to say that a few years back, he was drugged and raped, and as a result, the woman got pregnant and had a child. I must have had the strangest look of disbelief on my face, because never in a million years did I expect to hear that, of all things. He was obviously telling me something very personal, so I didn't want him to feel rejected by me, so I just smiled and hugged him and said, I'm so sorry. If you need anything, I'm here for you. I asked a few questions about how it happened and what his relationship was like with the child and the mother. He told me that it was the worst thing that ever happened in his life, but his family pressured him to be part of the child's life because it wasn't her fault. He actually showed me a picture of the mother's Facebook page and there was a picture of Opal that was a complete spitting image of him. And it's almost like he was going to cry. And I'm like, oh, he can cry in a dime. Yeah. You know that. So I'm just like, are you okay? Like, and he, he basically is like, this is something that is really hard for me to tell you. And that it was probably the hardest or the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life the worst experience and it's embarrassing for me to say and anyways he goes i end up taking her to court i charged her with rape and i'm like what and he goes she pled guilty that she drugged me oh my goodness and she pled guilty to second degree rape oh and i was like sitting there in shock i didn't even know what to say have you met the child he goes yeah I go, do you, are you part of its life? <laughs> like, what, what the heck? And he goes, I don't, I don't owe child support because it was rape, but I do, I am a part as much as I can be. I don't want to be, but my parents said that they kind of made me feel bad and that they forced it upon me. 
and they felt like it's not the child's fault that their mother raped me while I was passed out drunk uh, dr- and drugged. That honestly and pisses me off so much right now. And like, I'm so. Feeling, I mean, I know the story, so but. I, yeah. And so he made I his own daughter going, a fake rape baby. How yeah. fucked up is that? It was our second date, and so I guess I didn't put too much thought into it. And to be honest, I was really shocked, and there was probably a million questions I could have asked, but it wasn't like I was going to marry the guy. So at that point, I just was fine with what it was. When Kelly woke up, I could tell she was shocked to see Beefcake in our apartment cuddling with me on the couch. She cornered me in the hallway and probed me about the night. How in the hell did this happen? I thought you weren't into him. And all I could say was, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Weekends consisted of going out, having some drinks, coming home, making love, and then laying on the couch all day the next morning watching football. I actually hate football, but I was definitely too shy to say anything. I was so bored, but thankfully I was hungover and I could nap all day long. When he visited me in Portland, I would walk downstairs and let him into the underground parking garage and he would get out and hurry as fast as he could to kiss me and hold me for what seemed like forever. I loved his big strong arms around me and it made me feel safe and it made me feel loved. One particular day, I remember him just looking at me longingly and he said, that smile of yours, it's dangerous. I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but I think he knew at that moment he was hooked on me. And the feeling was definitely mutual. Next week on The X-Files. It's almost like they want you to get sucked in before you change your mind. He just showered me with so much love and attention. I felt like the most incredible human being that ever walked the earth. I remember my mom going, you don't think it's like a ring, do you? I was like, oh my God, no. He led me over to a table and- I cannot believe he did this. Right there. So I figured it out. And he's like, you did. And he grabs a box. And then that's when I was like, oh my God, are you, are you kidding me? Oh God. Like, what am I going to tell my family? Oh, they're going to die. I don't know about this. And once again, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review and make sure to join our private Facebook group for even more juicy info. You can also find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And of course, you can always visit our site at www.xwivesundercover.com.